This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. When the United States closed its schools in March 2020 to prevent the spread of the COVID virus, it also terminated its usual end-of-year state tests in math and reading. Some states have returned to testing in 21 and plan to do so in 2022, but it's not universal across the states. But if standard tests are to be abandoned or substantially revised, how are schools to be held accountable for teaching children? And how are teachers to be held accountable for fulfilling their classroom responsibilities? To discuss the accountability issue, I have with me on the Education Exchange, one of the most uh, noted authorities on the problem of accountability in the public sector. He is Philip Howard, founder of the organization Common Good, and he's author most recently of Try Common Sense, Replacing the Failed Ideologies of Right and Left. So Philip, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's great to be with you, Paul. So Philip, you have written a lot about accountability in the public sector, and you, you say that originally the civil service was expected to take politics out of administration, but then you're suggesting that public servants are operating in a way that they're no longer accountable to the public. And you've mentioned the police in particular recently. So why do you make this claim? What's the problem of accountability in, uh, in the United States? Well, accountability is foundational to democracy. Democracy is a process of accountability. We elect leaders uh, to run the police departments and schools and other departments. And uh, we elect someone else if they don't do a good job. So democracy is a process of accountability. Joe Biden once said, uh, democracy runs on accountability. So accountability is foundational. Um, and we have lost accountability. Civil service was not a system of tenure. It's not a system to prevent public employees from being accountable. It was a system to prevent public employees from getting their jobs as political spoils. So it was a neutral hiring process. And as one of the leading civil service reformers said at the time, if the front door is properly tended, the back door will take care of itself. So there wouldn't be a political incentive to fire people in order to give the job to a, you know, a favored political supporter. Um, and what's happened, uh, and I've told the story in various writings, but over the years, but especially since the 1960s, accountability has disappeared in the public sector and all kinds of evils flow from that. Um, more bureaucracy, et cetera, telling people how to do their jobs, uh, an over-focus on testing in schools, et cetera, and we can get into that. But Account, without accountability, democracy doesn't work. Without accountability, you can't have a good culture uh, in a public department. You know, there's just uh, accountability's foundation to life in a free society. We all make judgments about who we want to be with. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, that with respect to the police, the, the problem there is police have protection from their unions, from their collective bargaining agreements. And so it's very difficult to dismiss a policeman who pre should be removed from the, from the police force. Is that sort of a, an example of what you're talking about? 
Uh, yes, uh, indeed. And, um, and, and, and what so it's virtually impossible to, 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 to hold a bad cop accountable. Um, if, if in the unlikely event you try to hold them accountable, it will go to a, uh, an arbitration hearing, uh, which is rigged in a variety of ways, including by the police union approving the arbitrator. And so, um, so the people who run police departments don't even try. So Derek Chauvin, the policeman who killed George Floyd uh, in 2020, uh, had a checkered career, many complaints, and was thought by other policemen to be too tightly wound. This is a bad trait for someone carrying a loaded weapon on the street. Um, but the police chief not only did not have the authority to terminate Chauvin, she didn't even have the authority to reassign him off the beat under the police union collective bargaining agreement. Well, that also happens in education. We have collective bargaining agreements between unions and school districts, which uh, grant tenure to teachers. And uh, you have to, you can dismiss a teacher if you go through the dismissal process, but principals uh, report that it takes two or three years in order to go through all the legal loopholes that uh, are, are, are typically set up. And very, very few teachers are ever dismissed. So is this, is this also a problem in education? <laughs> it's, it's a serious problem. I think in the state of California, the number is something like two or three teachers out of 300,000 each year are dismissed for inadequate performance. I mean, that's, I mean, and it, California has a lousy public education system. It's ranked near the bottom, as I understand. So, yes, yeah, so no, actually, we've done a survey where we've asked teachers what percentage of their colleagues uh, fall into a category of very unsatisfactory. And it's about, you know, eight, 10%, which is a pretty big number. I mean, it's not the majority of teachers by any means, but still, if you've got the 5% of your teachers who are uh, unsatisfactory as perceived by their colleagues, that's, that's a problem. It's a serious problem. And it's a, and, and it's a problem on, in, in the first order, it's a problem for the children who are in the classrooms of those teachers. So that's number one. Uh, it, 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 but a second level effect, and there are third and fourth level effects, is that it's very hard to maintain uh, a, a culture of, in, in a school, a culture of, of energy and innovation and all of that, if everyone knows that performance doesn't matter. And every day you pass in the corridor a teacher who, whom you know is not effective in that classroom. And then some teacher gets the students the next year and they have to educate them in things they should have learned the year before. It's just incredibly discouraging. And so, it's, so there's a kind of a ripple effect uh, to the culture that makes it hard to have an effective school. And if you look at all the studies of good schools, invariably, uh, they're, they're places where somehow or another, by culture or by the leadership of the principal, everyone feels that they must do their best. 
you know, they must go in every day and really work hard and do it. And there's a, there's a kind of innovation and a spirit of personality uh, that's embedded in effective schools that's the opposite of kind of bureaucratic compliance, just show up on the, at eight o'clock, you know, that sort of thing. Well, you know, in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, about a decade or more ago, they uh, actually instituted uh, a reform where they rewarded the excellent teachers by paying them <clears throat> considerably more. And But more importantly, I think, is that they gave the principals the authority to dismiss teachers and uh, or at least the school system as a whole could do that. And a considerable number of them were actually uh, let go when they, after evaluation, didn't uh, show up as performing well. And the schools in Washington, D.C. have improved more than in any other large city in the country in the ensuing period. So that really fits with what you just said. Yes, that's correct. So, and and I'm sure the spirit of those schools also uh, um, is is key to 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 their improvement. You know, everyone when everyone knows everyone else is doing their job, it inspires even people who are doing a good job to do better. And um, so it's it's just as I said at the beginning, accountability is really foundational not for the negative reason we everybody talks about you know what about the rights of the teachers dismissed or whatever but for the positive reason of, of the effect on everyone else well you know when they instituted this new plan they gave t new teachers a choice you can go in under the old system where you keep your rights or you go under the new system and you earn a lot more money. And all the new teachers have been choosing the new system. Almost nobody has chosen the old system. And so the teachers themselves actually like this system better than what was there previously. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, that's, well, that's, a, that's a huge success story. But it's, uh, as you know better than I do, it's an isolated success story. Yeah, well, that's exactly was what I was going to bring up next. Why hasn't an idea like this that's actually been shown to work in a particular place? There's been uh, very good evaluations of it by external uh, analysts. Uh, why isn't this spreading? Why don't other school districts pick this up and say, we want to do the same thing? Um, the decision making in in modern democracy broadly and in particular in schools is organized um, to protect the status quo. And so the, the the collective bargaining agreements are in control of union leaders. The collective bargaining agreements are um, are an exercise of control. You know, you basically cannot hold a teacher accountable under them. You know, you have you have to go to a hearing just to put a negative comment in someone's file, not to dismiss them. I mean, you know, everything requires a hearing. So, so there's all this sophistry, and that's why principals don't. That's why it takes years to do it, and and principals don't don't want to go through it. But it's not simply a matter of accountability. It's also how many minutes per month the teacher has to spend with the principal, whether the principal has to give advance notice when he to show up to observe a teacher in the classroom. There's just all these constraints, any one of which could be a defense if, if someone tried to dismiss a teacher or, or hold them accountable. And 
and and the unions don't want to give up this control. Um, and so, and I have a project I'm working on now, which I'm happy to discuss if you want to discuss it, about how to break the stranglehold of the public unions, like the teachers union, over the organization of most American schools. Well, I was going to ask you, why don't school boards just say, we won't sign such a collective bargaining agreement this coming year. We're going to demand changes in that agreement so that we have a, a, the capacity to hold the, the employees accountable. Uh, well, uh, one reason is political power. The school boards are elected in large part um, uh, with the help of the teachers union. The teachers union is by far the largest um, uh, political interest group by amount spent and others in the country by far. And um, uh, no one in the Democratic Party will, will, uh, uh, will break or try to break the, the, the unions because they're, uh, the experience is if you try to do that, they will then put all of their muscle against you to get you unelected <laughs> as a political person. It's not just the absence of a positive, it's the existence of a negative. So, so some poor official who tries to do this in some town in Kentucky, where I'm from, um, will find that he has the National Teachers Union <laughs> putting millions of dollars against his local campaign. <laughs> so, so you have this, uh, uh, democracy is uh, has been to a great extent disabled by uh, by collective bargaining by the public unions and their political power. Um, yeah, you know the uh, collective bargaining was not authorized until the 1960s, so it didn't exist before, and 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 no one really noticed when it, it just got swept in in the rights revolution. Let's have collective bargaining, and there was one kind of fig leaf report written for President Kennedy by Arthur Goldberg, talked about how oh, if we allow collective bargaining, this was in the federal government, it will help make government um, agencies work more effectively. <laughs> of course, the opposite is true. Uh, it makes them uh, to a great extent unmanageable. So, uh, and so the, the unions got this power and they've used it. And they, they now are kind of a fortress against accountability, against change, against innovation. Um, you know, there, as you know, there have been a number of books written about this. Probably the most complete was Terry Moe's 2010 or 11 book called Special Interest on uh, just about the teachers union. Um, um, I uh, believe, however, that the main indictment of public unions isn't their inefficiency. It isn't that they don't make things <laughs> hard to manage a school. It's that they've disabled democratic governance. We elect people to run the city, including schools, and they don't have the authority to do it. So given that problem, what is to be done? How, how are you going to, how are you going to work around this? Because it sounds like it's so built in at, at this point in time, there's, there's no, no way of going back. Uh, I am in the middle of writing a paper 
um, a white paper that, uh, arguing that, that collective bargaining in the public sector is unconstitutional and that the Supreme Court should, um, should declare um, collective bargaining uh, unlawful on two, on the two bases under the federal constitution. Uh, one is something called the guarantee clause in Article 4, Section 4, in which the federal government guarantees a Republican form of government in the states. And that's never been applied, generally, never been applied in this context. Well, that's not been applied to very many things in general, right? That's sort of yeah. one of those silent clauses in the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it's been argued about from time to time. There was a lot of talk in the 19th century by the abolitionists who wanted to use it because what it, what, what it, means, according to the historians, Republican form of government, is that the voters are ultimately in control. You couldn't give the power of the state to an aristocracy. You know, the voters have to be able to elect somebody who then has the authority to run the state. And so uh, uh, we're arguing or we'll be arguing that it should be applied in this unique new circumstance because it has effectively disabled the voters. Well, that's an interesting idea, but what's your other angle? Because I think this, this clause is not, not active enough to be a very, I'm a little, I'm a little concerned that this would be sure. enough to, to persuade uh, uh, Justice <laughs> Roberts, uh, who's yeah. very cautious about these matters. So what's, what's your other, uh, other, the other one, the, the other one, the other federal uh, basis is the non-delegation doctrine. And as a general doctrine, um, officials were not allowed to delegate official authority to other groups. Without any question, the collective bargaining agreements uh, delegate authority in a variety of ways. And the, the most direct way is that when there's a disagreement under many contracts over, um, over the contract itself, it gets decided not by the legislature, but by, uh, by arbitrators. Well, who elected them? <laughs> who, who elected arbitrators to decide how the school budget should be you know, set and et cetera? Um, you know, and what the rules of the collective bargaining agreement are. So, so the non-delegation doctrine is pretty, it, pretty well established. And if you read the um, recent Supreme Court cases including the Janus case, which said that, you know, you couldn't collect agency, the unions couldn't collect agency fees um, um, from people who didn't belong to the union, et cetera. Um, yeah, there, there was a free speech uh, issue and that's a very lively area. And, and that was a very, uh, you know, I don't know how effective it's gonna be in practice, but it, it was a really, a, the courts showing an awareness that they not need to put some limits on the on union uh, power. That's right. But and if you reread that opinion and a few other opinions um, with wearing the pair of glasses that we're <laughs> wearing during this conversation, you know, should collective bargaining agreements be constitutional? You will find a lot in that and a few other recent opinions that would give you hope that the court would be sympathetic to these arguments. But I see the federalism question as standing in the way here because the, the Supreme Court does not like to get involved too much in matters that they think are questions of state policy. And if you take that California case where 
there was a constitutional claim made that uh, this was depriving the civil rights of minority students, uh, the tenure requirement and the seniority rights of, of senior teachers and ended up with novice teachers going into the classrooms uh, uh, where minority students were concentrated. That they won at the at the local court, but uh, the you know the circuit court. But by the time it got to the state supreme court, it was done, and it never did get to the federal courts. Yeah, that's right. Well, that was also um, not at the same level of generalization. That was an operational argument. I mean, this you know these agreements are not effective to teach children. You know that's a traditional kind of decision that you leave to to the people who are elected to make decisions whether this is the right way to run schools or not. You, what I'm arguing here is, is on another level, which is that democracy itself can no longer operate effectively. It doesn't matter whom you elect because they can't make the decisions needed to run the schools. And there are many levels in this indictment, and I look forward to your comments when I send you the draft. <laughs> well, there's another <laughs> accountability out the issue out there that I'd love to get your expertise on, and and that has to do with students, because a lot of teachers will say, "Look, there's so much going on in the classroom and in the hallways. There's this bullying that's going on. There's misbehaviors and." The, we have, the courts have imposed upon us so many uh, restrictions on what we can do in terms of uh, addressing these disciplinary problems that uh, we can't maintain the, the, the quorum that's necessary for, for education. So have we given up uh, uh, holding students accountable? Yes, completely. And so um, uh, when, when Bloomberg was mayor of New York, uh, my group had a joint venture with, uh, with the uh, Department of Education and with the teachers union to uh, explore new uh, methods of discipline. Because this is an area where the teachers union and, and, and education officials are completely aligned. I mean, the teachers and schools have been disempowered from uh, uh, maintaining effective discipline, which the effect of which of course is the kids can't learn. You know, you have one one kid acting up in the class, and none of the other children can learn. And this is also a problem with special ed laws, you know, which provide special, um, even more safeguards against holding kids account. You know, to keeping them out of the classroom when they're throwing chairs. You know, to, you know, acting in ways that are making it impossible for anybody to. Uh, anybody else to learn anything. And we keep talking about individual rights throughout our society without anybody asking or almost nobody asking the question, what about everybody else's rights? What about the rights of the other kids who wanna learn? You know, I mean, this is not a question of just the rights of the kid who's being disciplined. It's a question of the rights of the kids who, who, who wanna learn and the, and the rights, the institutional rights and, and trying to maintain an effective school. Um, so one of the ideas we had in this joint venture that we were working on years ago um, was to uh, free up some resources and, and create um, alternative classroom settings 
with their own teachers and supervisors and such in a different way of doing the curriculum for the kids who just couldn't keep order, but with no restraints on the ability to send the kids there. I mean, the, the people had no restraints other than, you know, agreement by the assistant pr principal or whatever. You know, the teachers have to have presumptive authority to maintain order in the classroom. And if, 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 if a child or student can't abide by those, then the school should provide an alternative setting, not just send the kid home and there's nobody at home or they're not, you know, send the kids to the streets, which is not a good thing to do. So we ought to have resources to deal with it. But, but right now the teachers feel disempowered. So um, this all sounds very, very uh, uh, persuasive, um, but um, the courts uh, have spoken and placed lots of limits on uh, uh, how do we how do we get around these new legal uh, arrangements? Uh, you changed them. And the courts have made mistakes in in the, the you know in the in the heyday of the rights revolution, they assume that uh, that any decision ought to be subject to objective proof, you know. And and how do you how does a teacher go prove that Johnny threw the pencil first? How does a principal prove that a teacher bores the students? You can second guess those decisions. You can have checks and balances or speed bumps. Um, to make sure people aren't treated unfairly, but you can't prove them in a legal hearing. It's not a, you're not sending the kid to jail, you're sending him home or to another classroom. You know, it's just, you know, we've gotten the whole idea of due process is way overboard. And, um, and I've talked to some of the Supreme Court justices who I'm acquainted with about this, and I'm giving a talk um, at the 11th Circuit Judicial Conference this year, which is 10% of all the federal judges on this very topic, on the need to restore the authority needed to run a free society, in this case, to run a school. You've got to restore the authority of the teacher to run the classroom. And, um, and these sort of utopian ideas that, that grew out of the 1960s have failed us and they failed the population intended to be helped. Well, there's another utopian idea out there that's being offered, which is to say, let parents have a choice of school, let them go to a charter school or get a voucher to go to a private school so that they can find a school that does uh, operate according to uh, accountability provision. So you really change accountability away from uh, top-down accountability to sort of letting a, a more a market accountability. So. What do you think of this idea? Is this an alternative accountability mechanism that might be appropriate given the challenges that uh, the public school system faces? I very much subscribe to um, free choice generally, and um, particularly given all the, uh, uh, given the paralysis of the structures around which schools are organized, it's hard to see, you know, how some schools could be fixed without really pushing the reset button. I mean, I was reading Dale Russikoff's book about Mark Zuckerberg's $100 million grant to the Newark school system. And um, 
there was a young hero teacher in the public school system who finally gave up and joined the KIPP school down the block. And she was asked why she was dedicated to public school. She said, because I'm the only, the, the New York school system can only afford one teacher for my classroom of almost 30 children. And, um, and KIPP uh, has three teachers per classroom for the same size. And these kids need that kind of individual help. You just, you know, I don't have the bandwidth to do what's needed for the 26 children, you know, students in my classroom. And, and so then the next question is, well, do the KIPP school pay, spend more money? Well, as a, as a matter of fact, the KIPP school spent a lot less money per student. The, uh, the public school system was 19, back then, $19,000 per student, and the KIPPs were spending 16. Well, why is that? It's because things, because these embedded entitlements, many of which were reflected in union agreements, have so larded up the budgets of these school systems that they can't do what's needed. So in Newark, it costs $1,200 per student, the Newark school system, for janitorial services. In the KIPP school system, it costs $300. You know, that's just an example of how embedded bureaucratic structures take a life of their own. And, 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 and pretty soon you can't run an effective institution. So yes, choice. People need choices because these legacy institutions need to be disrupted. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Philip Howard. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, having uh, this opportunity to discuss uh, your insights on accountability in the public sector. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's, it's great being with you, Paul, and I look forward to another one. I've been speaking with Philip Howard, founder of the organization Common Good and author most recently of Try Common Sense, Replacing the Failed Ideologies of Right and Left. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.